Hello and welcome to Joy, Passion and Profit, where our intention is to empower entrepreneurs to build companies that change the world. And this show is based on a lesson that I learned from my grandfather. You see, when I was approximately 10 years old, I remember walking up to my grandfather and I told him, you know, Grandpa, when I get older, I'm going to be rich. And he asked me how I was going to do that. And I told him that I was going to own my own company. And he said, that's a great goal to have. He said, if you want to be rich, he said, I'm going to tell you the two things you have to do. He said, number one, you have to learn to think like rich people. He said, the only difference between rich people and poor people is how they think. And he said, number two, if you're going to be rich, you have to learn how to listen. He said, because rich people will tell you how they got rich. And it's up to you to listen to them so that you can figure out how to be rich yourself. And it also means reading their stories, using them as examples, follow their lead. And I'll never forget those two lessons. And so the intention of this show is to provide you with information and wisdom that I hope you will listen to so that you too can become a successful entrepreneur. So what I do is I bring on guests that can share information and wisdom that can support you in becoming the best entrepreneur you can possibly be. And I got a very special guest for you today. And her name is Dr. Stephanie Zapata. And we're going to have a conversation about a lot of things, but primarily we're going to talk about financial therapy. Because as an entrepreneur, obviously money is a big issue and it impacts us in a lot of different ways, not just in our business. So make sure you tune in for the whole uh, conversation because it's going to be pretty powering. And with that being said, let's welcome Dr. Zapata to the show. Dr. Zapata, how are you doing today? Doing great, doing great. And you can you can call me Stephanie throughout the conversation. All righty, Stephanie. Thanks for that permission because I was going to go there anyway. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, so, so Stephanie, we're really glad to have you on the show. And before we start talking about your profession and what you do, we're going to start with a few icebreaker questions. So first of all, tell us a little bit about where you're from and what was it like growing up for you? Sorry, the recording went a little... Did you get the question? No, you said, tell me a little bit about... Tell, yeah, tell me a little bit about where you're from and a little bit about growing up. What was that like? Wonderful. Yes, I am from... I was born in Houston, Texas. Um, my father, um, for work, had to travel around a lot. So eventually I got back here for high school. And so I do consider myself a Houstonian. Um, and then I went to undergraduate university, a small Catholic university in Dallas called the University of Dallas majored in biology and psychology, and then went on to get my PhD in marriage and family therapy from St. Mary's University in San Antonio. And while I was there, I had the, the privilege of doing my doctoral uh, internship at the Houston Galveston Institute. So that brought me back to Houston again. And, um, and that was just an amazing training opportunity. And then I also was able to do my dissertation at MD Anderson on relational effects of pain during radiotherapy. So it was a little bit of a hodgepodge that kind of got me to, <laughs> to what I'm doing today, but um, I'm currently a professor at Our Lady of the Lake University, their Houston campus. A lot of folks know about their San Antonio campus, but, um, but relatively few folks know about the Houston campus. And I teach in their marriage and family therapy graduate school program there. Nice. Now, tell us a little bit about your family, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. 
I have a, an interesting hodgepodge of a family. Uh, so I'm actually one of nine children. Wow. And my father, um, he's, he's on his fourth marriage. So in some ways, I joke with folks that I've been doing marriage and family therapy my whole life. I just wanted to... <laughs> <laughs> and then my husband's also from a very large family as well. He's one of six. Um, and his father is one of nine. My father is one of seven. My mother is one of six. So we don't have anything that's ever a small family gathering. Whenever we have even just a birthday party, it's at least over 150 people. So um, yeah, we, we love it. It's a really good time. Okay. Now, name a female hero that you look up to. Oh, my goodness. That's a really good one. I would have to say that I really, the female hero that I really look up to the most is my uh, supervisor. Good. Um, her name's uh, Dr. Diana Carlton. She um, not only trained me at the Houston Galveston Institute when I was there as an intern, but did my, um, my post-grad supervision as well. And just the clinical expertise that she brings to situations of how to have really difficult conversations in a really loving way is just unsurpassed. I've learned, I attribute the majority of my clinical skills to her training, and she's also still a very dear friend. So I, I would definitely consider her uh, one, of my, one of my biggest uh, heroes. Now, on the flip side of that, name a man who has inspired you to be who you are. Ah, that would be, the, that would be my dad, that would be my father. He, um, his, his money lessons, um, you know, when you were speaking about your grandfather, I thought my, my father popped into my mind. He, he would say things like, you know, a millionaire can go broke $5 at a time, right? And how you should uh, kind of um, save, your, save your money and be smart about it and, and just kind of working very hard. I got my work ethic from him. Absolutely. My work ethic from him. Good. Now, there are some people who are pessimistic about the future, and there are others who are optimistic about the future. Mm -hmm. So where do you fall on that spectrum for the future in general? Are you on the optimistic side or more on the pessimistic side? That is a beautiful question. I was just having a conversation with my students um, two weeks ago about, you know, you can analyze um, media that's consumed to show what a society is thinking about. And we were analyzing kind of <clears throat> how there's a lot of dystopian themes emerging in our media today of this just gloom and doom kind of scenario and how it's reflective of art is reflective of the culture, right? That people are nervous, they're scared. And so we were discussing how it's really important as therapists that we be that more utopian side. We bring hope. In fact, Hope is literally one of the items that we measure in our students as far as a mm, understanding of if they are being good therapists. If they're not inspiring hope, if they're not bringing hope to the table for their clients, then they're not being the best therapist that they can be. And so we literally teach how to give hope to people. And so while it's very easy, especially with social media and media in general, displaying all the evil of the world, it's very important to remember that um, human beings are essentially good and that kindness is the strongest virtue in the world and that while evil does exist, the best way to combat it is with light. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And there's, there's a saying that I heard that um, Deepak Chopra said, I thought it was pretty powerful. He said, you know, there's two ways to look at life. One is as if the world is primarily a dangerous place, but only moments of safety. And the other is that the world is primarily a safe place, but only moments of danger. And I choose the latter. And I choose to see the world not through the lens of the negative media, but I'm an eternal optimist. That's just the lens through which I see the world. And I, I simply choose to focus my attention on that. And I love how you say kindness, how important that is. Because when we have a heart of kindness, I think we, we seek out more things to be kind about. So I really, I really uh, admire that attitude, especially from a therapist's perspective, because I can just imagine how a therapist, how ineffective they would be if they weren't spreading the hope, you know, that the person could get better. So, all right. So what lights you up and gets you out of bed every morning? Um, other than my daughter. <laughs> but, but I guess that's, that's a great, that's a great, um, you know, it's, it's a literal truth, like she'll, you know, be calling me. <laughs> Get out, mama! Yeah, yeah, mama. Um, but then, um, I, have, I have a three-year-old. Um, but then also, um, you know, metaphorically, it, it's it's her too, right? Um, I think that that is, and not just my specific daughter, but um, but just the, the general kind of love and humanity and, and hope in making the world a better place. And there's you know, I, I was asking um, my students the other day, I said, you know, um, imagine what would you be doing if you didn't have to work? Let's say that you suddenly just didn't have to work. You got, you know, plenty of money. And if the answer is not, I'd be doing what I'm doing right now, then finding a way to align that more with your life, finding some way to do that. And I, I truly feel um, very blessed that I'm in a profession where I get to, um, help make the world a better place bit by bit. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get any buildings named after me or anything like that, but I'm, I'm helping in a very small way, um, changing people's daily lives. And that's, that's, that's what gets me up in the morning. Now that's a, that's a perfect segue into my final question. Mm -hmm. So if I gave you a magic wand mm -hmm. and with this wand, you could create anything your heart desires, what would your life look like 10 years from now? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Okay. I think that it would be having, continuing to foster these relationships. My, I, I've, I've been surprised at how much I um, am loving teaching. I originally I got my PhD because I was doing research and I was a huge nerd. I did not want to teach. That was the bottom of my priorities. And it is amazing to see. I've, I've been full-time faculty there for three years, but I was adjunct faculty before that for two years. So I've been teaching there for five years. And it is so powerful to see my students coming up and 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 starting their businesses and and becoming supervisors and i got i um i i hosted a, a conference life-changing conversations last weekend and a lot of the the participants there were my former students and it just i mean talk about your heart exploding it was amazing um it's it was very similar to how i feel when i see you know my daughter reach milestones along the way with seeing them reach those milestones so i can't imagine 10 years from now um 
all of the amazing therapists that um, are in Houston, uh, just continuing to get together and build up that, that sort of um, connective uh, type of therapy, because I feel that if we don't really spread those ideas of positive anthropology and kindness and hope, that sometimes even in psychotherapy, become uh, very negatively focused and very pathologizing. And so it's a very important message. And I think I really do feel like that's a vocation for me, that we get that message out there, um, a very positive view of mental health and a, a very um, positive view of human beings. And, and I think that that would be amazing to see in the next 10 years as that develops. Nice, nice. So as a therapist, or let me ask you this, why did you become a therapist? Why did you choose this profession? Ah, that's a very good question. Um, so when I was in, when I was, um, in undergrad, I um, originally was a philosophy major. I wanted to be an attorney. And, um, and so I, I quickly changed my mind after my first semester, I, I, I turned to biology and I wanted to become a physician. And I enrolled in doing some internships at MD Anderson Cancer Center in the gynecologic oncology ward under Dr. Pedro Ramirez. And I remember I was studying with, um, and, and, and doing some research of uh, taking some data from the client or the, from the patient files and putting it into a database. And I found myself constantly, I was not very interested in how many centimeters their tumors were. <laughs> I was so drawn to, there was a little section of their narrative of their life. And that's where I would go and look forward to every single time. And so I thought, okay, let me listen to this a little bit. Why am I so much more attracted to their stories and to their uterus? And so I went back to my undergrad and that's when I started taking some more psychology classes. And I just, fell in love with the field and then decided that that's how I wanted to change the world instead. Nice. Now, there's a lot of coverage right now about mental health in the news these days. Mm. And do you think the stigma about asking for help is actually changing? It's a great question. Um, so there's actually some recent data from a, a recent article from the Wall Street Journal just published about how um, millennials are the talk therapy generation, how they're going to therapy in droves um, because they're prioritizing mental health in a very similar way to how people prioritize their physical health. And so I do feel like it's shifting a lot. Um, I take a very preventative maintenance approach to my therapy, especially to my couples therapy. Um, my husband and I, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, sorry, Johnny, uh, but my husband and I, we go to couples therapy um, for regular maintenance. We, we go when there's no problems because what better, what better place to discuss important issues than when you're in a good place? Many times people wait until they're in full crisis mode. They wait until the analogy of they're having a heart attack to go to the cardiologist. Same thing. They wait until their marriage is in flames before they go to the therapist and they say, well, why couldn't they fix you? Well, same reason why the cardiologist can't stop the heart attack you're having. People wait too long. And I fully admit I'm biased here. I think everyone should go. Um, but I believe that 
um, one of the biggest barriers is that stigma, is that stigma that um, even, even when I tell people, oh, you know, yeah, Johnny and I go to couples therapy, they say, oh, is everything okay? It's this expectation that you're going because things are going badly. Um, but it's, it's kind of taking a lesson from your world of life coaching and how um, if you take a very positive anthropology towards people and towards their everyday problems, you really don't need to go when something's going terribly wrong. You can go to make things better than they already are, not, not um, heal, you know, um, waiting for crisis mode. But I think that the stigma definitely exists, although we see kind of that shift with that millennial um, generation and the accessibility of therapy. I'm, I'm sure you've seen those advertisements for, um, you know, uh, video chat therapy and text message therapy and things like that. And I, te I teach a technology workshop for therapists of how, that they, how they can um, be better equipped to use those technologies because it's not even the future, it's here, it's today. That is how we're doing therapy today. Yeah, and it's interesting because I, 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 another reason for my optimism about the future is what you just mentioned is that millennials, and, and I really dislike labels and titles that you know we say Gen X's and, and millennials, but I think this generation of, of human beings are more in touch with, are more in tune with, I'll say, their inner world. Mm -hmm. Been so focused on materialism and consumerism, and and I think you know we we collectively as a species, I think we're we're at a point where we want more, we want deeper, and I think millennials are really driving that. And so I once again I'm optimistic because the people that I'm speaking with are saying the same thing. They want meaning and connection. You know, they don't just want stuff, and they, and they want to to have deeper relationships and and and. I think, just for me, that the driving force is actually part of human evolution. There's a woman by the name of Barbara Marks Hubbard. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Mm -hmm. uh, she recently passed away, but she's been around for a long, long time. She wrote a book called Conscious Evolution. And her theory is that human beings are still evolving. And obviously we're not evolving physically, but we're evolving in what she calls in consciousness. And so she says, ultimately, humanity will evolve to what she calls homo universalis. And in this state of being, we recognize as human beings that we're all the same. And we move past these illusions of separation and disconnection based on ethnicity. And so, once again, that's another reason for my optimism, because I believe in what she's saying. I do believe human beings are still evolving. And I think this generation is proving that because they want more connection. So I think that's really important. Now, for me, I make a distinction. And I'm not a therapist. I'm a coach. But I do. I make a distinction between mental health and emotional health. Because we hear mental health a lot in, in, the, in the media. But I actually make a distinction between the two. Would you make the same distinction or no? I've never been asked to make the distinction, but pondering it. Oh, goodness. And here's why. Yeah. I'll, 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 sh I'll show why. I'm a big science guy. Mm -hmm. And I love Einstein. And Einstein said something that I'm sure everybody's heard this quote is that Everything is energy. 
That's just the way that it is. He said, match the frequency of the reality that you want. And there's no way you can't create that reality. It could be no other way. But he said, this isn't philosophy. This is physics. And so what I take from that, when I think about this concept that everything is energy, I say emotions are just energy in motion. And so what happens is we have this energy in us that we have to figure out how to feel, express, and emote. And so when I think about emotional health, I think of people carrying around suppressed pain that they haven't dealt with. And it's literally trapped in their bodies. And when they go through this healing process, it releases that energy. And I can speak from my own experience of dealing with childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And so it was an emotional release, not a mental release. And therefore, I make a, a slight distinction that it is the energy, the emotions that we have in us that needs to be healed and released. So with that being said, what are your thoughts? You're, you're speaking to a, an idea that's central to my heart. Um, and that is this, uh, this idea of, you know, do we connect our, our minds from our bodies? Do we disconnect them? That, that, that Cartesian split, right? Between the thinking of, um, you know, uh, that your mind is separate from your emotions. And, and I think the reason why the question for me is that I, I can draw a distinction insofar as like we're talking about our emotions and we're talking about our, our cognition, our thoughts and everything. But I think for me, um, I'm, a, I'm a monist. I, I believe that the, the mind and the body are so integrated and, and that the, the, the bodily sensation of an emotion um, is just as much of your consciousness as the thought, right? And so I think that where I would draw that, that distinction is I would say, um, and it, it's interesting, this was, we actually spoke about this in the talk that, um, that we gave last week, uh, my colleague, Dr. Alan Novian and I spoke of this. Your, your, your head brain, your heart brain, and, and your gut brain. Right, that those are th three different brains that we have, the three different things we think with. And so I think that um, when I heard you talking about, um, you know, that that emotional release, that sounded more like a um, almost like a, a, a gut brain or a heart brain, where that was coming from, versus this the kind of cerebral notions of it all. But I do think that um, I think they're definitely connected, um, and I do think that. Um, both need tending to that. That if um, one of my one of my um, mentors, Dr. Randy Lyle, always said, um, we used to think that we had thinking brains that felt sometimes, but now the current neuroscience shows us that we have feeling brains that sometimes think. And so that's kind of the idea behind that is that our brains are are very emotional. They're way more emotional than we than we originally thought. And so all this really neat new research coming out about, um, about how our brains um, we use the emotions to think, yeah. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Now, as entrepreneurs, we obviously deal with a wide variety of challenges and stressful situations. So 
what are some of the symptoms that a person might need to recognize that might indicate it's time to consider going to therapy? Yes, that's great. So I, I think that um, some of the biggest things that, that you'll notice going awry, big kind of warning signs of wanting, needing to maybe reach out is when your sleep, your eating, your exercise, or your social connections are being interrupted. Now, if it's happening occasionally where you have one night where, oh gosh, you've just tossed and turned, or you have, you know, um, uh, a, a spat with your spouse, that's totally fine and normal. But if you're finding that it's getting rather frequent um, and, and listen to that sleep, oh my goodness, listen to that sleep. That's one of the first questions I ask folks when they come in. Um, is how's how's sleep going, right? Um, and if that if that that sleep will betray you, it'll tell you something's up and something's bothering you. And so I think that you can definitely wait to go um, when you know when one of those is is flaring up. Um, but kind of going back to what I said earlier about about preventative maintenance, um, you can also go when things are going great. You know, I, I know most people don't, the, the majority of my clients do not come to me and say, everything's going wonderfully. I'm here to just talk. Um, but I think that um, more so for couples, more so for couples, I would say, go when things are good. Go when things are good so that you have that goodness to draw upon to, um, to help with any problems that might be, uh, that might be just pondered in your relationship. Now, another big topic of discussion I've noticed is the whole topic of depression. Mm -hmm. And I remember after my divorce, I, I sunk into a deep, deep state of depression and I didn't even recognize that I was depressed. I, I, I didn't understand the symptoms. I didn't know. I was so disconnected emotionally that I didn't know that I was depressed. And I know, especially for men, it's not uncommon at all to not even know that they're depressed. So can you share what are some of the symptoms of depression? Of course, of course. So we, we have kind of the, the, um, the diagnostic statistical manual, right? The, the psychiatrist Bible, if you will, of, of different signs of depression. A lot of it is um, anhedonia, not taking pleasure in things that you used to normally find very pleasurable sleep dysregulation, absolutely, um, relationship, uh, relation, relationship, uh, not dysfunction, but dissolution, um, isolation, very big one, and then also um, just kind of having an overall um, difficulty even finding pleasure at all. And, and it's interesting how people can have that kind of hidden, uh, hidden depression, like you were talking about how they're functioning, right? They're going to work, they're doing these things. Um, but that it, it can just feel, um, it can feel so subtle that you don't even notice it until it's, until it bursts upon you. Another working theory that I have on depression is that at times it's, it's not, depression alone, but it is a cumulative effect of constant and persistent anxiety to the point where your brain and your body just say, no, I cannot do anxiety anymore. 
I'm slumping into depression. And I see that happening a lot. And you speak about entrepreneurs. There's a lot of stress of being an entrepreneur. And so sometimes you might not be experiencing a pure depression. You might be experiencing a cumulative effect of all of your stressors, all of your anxieties just coming upon you um, suddenly. And so there's, there's that other definition of anxiety, or sorry, definition of depression, if you will. Now, talk a little bit of, about anxiety. Because I know that, you know, as an entrepreneur, there's, there's so many things that we juggle as entrepreneurs. And, you know, stress can be good stress. And having different challenges coming all at you at once does not necessarily mean you're anxious. You're just dealing with a lot of different things. But talk a little bit more specifically about anxiety. Great, great distinction. So um, what I would say about anxiety is that it's a very helpful friend, very helpful friend that's trying to direct you to things of import in your life. So, but it's very much like a, let's use the analogy of a cactus in the desert. You know that there's water in that cactus and if you're in the desert, you need, you need to get to that water. But there's all these prickly, prickly sticks that can really hurt you if you're not very careful with how you use that cactus. And that's kind of what anxiety is like. Your anxiety is, is kind of an, an existential manifestation that's trying to guide you somewhere. So listen to it, listen to it, help, let, let it be a tool to help you juggle the many things you have going on. And also know when you're getting stuck by the cactus pricks. Stuck by the cactus pricks, feels like you dropping the ball, um, forgetting, forgetting details of meetings that you really needed to remember. Go back to sleep again. Your sleep just being absolutely dysregulated where you wake up at three o'clock in the morning remembering things that you needed to do and you can't fall back asleep. Um, it, when you are noticing that your energy levels are just being depleted. Those are the pricks and spines of the cactus of anxiety. And that's when, you're, that's when you know, okay, my anxiety is no longer being a helpful friend that's guiding me. It's turned to stress, right? Anxiety is a beautiful um, mover. It, it, it produces action. Stress just it gets you stuck and you can't move. So try to notice, am I having some helpful anxiety? Or am I having stress and making that distinction? And if you're if you're having that helpful anxiety and it's moving you, wonderful. But the moment that you start to notice you're going more into that stress mode and that it's being prolonged and prolonged, reach out, reach out to um, friends, family, life coaches, or therapists. Nice. Now you you work with neurofeedback as part of your therapy. So can you explain what that is and how it works? Yes, yeah. So neurofeedback has, it, it, it's, it's been around since the 70s, but it only really um, started taking hold once technology got a little bit cheaper. And so really started taking hold in the 90s and then all the way up to today. And it's got a lot of different um, technical points to it. There's different types of neurofeedback, different um, softwares that you can use. 
but the general premise is that you are using your brain to change itself. Very similar to the notions of biofeedback and breathing, right? Where you are using um, a device, and they have these devices from the 1950s, where you're using a device to regulate your breathing rhythm to an optimal state. Um, and so you're regulating your, your neural pathways um, to an optimal state. And um, what you would do is you get a brain map done, a quantitative EEG, to see what your brain waves are doing relative to a normal population. I say normal because there's no such thing as a normal brain, but these brains are not anxious. These brains um, have no have no cancer, have no things things like that. It's a database of normal brain wave activity, and when we get that analysis back, we get to see, okay, at what location of the head and at what frequency is your brain firing in a different way than these normal brains? One of the classic um, examples of this is ADHD. Um, if you look at a person who has, um, who has ADHD symptoms, when they have their eyes open, their brains are predominantly running, especially in the frontal lobe, predominantly running um, in very slow brain waves. You'd think it would be the opposite, right? Oh, they're, they have ADHD. They must be running very quickly. No, it looks like they are asleep. They're firing in, um, in uh, de delta and theta, which are dream. That's sleep brain waves. And they're firing in that with their eyes open in the middle of the day. And so that's why stimulants work so well. Stimulants speed up the brain. Great, speeds up that frontal lobe. They're able to go into a little bit higher beta. They're able to engage and stay on task. One of the problems with the medicines though, is that it doesn't speed up just the frontal lobes. It speeds up the entire brain. And so when you speed up the entire head, when all you really need is that frontal lobe sped up, what happens? All those side effects that you hear about from stimulant medication sleep dysregulation, appetite suppressant, um, irritability, because when you're speeding up the, the parietal lobes, that's, the parietal lobes are very much responsible for your sense of body and space and time. You all of a sudden get this bodily agitation. And so a lot of people don't like being on those stimulant meds, or a lot of parents see those changes in their children and want something else. The cool thing about neurofeedback is that it can train specifically where your brain needs it. So for something like ADHD, we would train specifically and speed up specifically this person's um, brainwaves right in the frontal lobes, or generally we would actually start at the center of the head because that tends to be running a little bit too slowly as well. And the, the, the mechanics of it is that we place an electrode on their head, on a scalp. We don't drill it in, we just put it on with paste. And then that electrode's connected to a amplifier. The amplifier amplifies the signal to a point where it can be read on a computer. The computer reads the signal. If you keep making the slow brain waves, you don't get the reward. And the reward is a puzzle piece on a screen. The moment that you speed up a little bit, you get the puzzle piece. You get the puzzle piece, you get the puzzle piece. So you only get the puzzle piece when you speed up your brain. Huh. And then whenever you don't speed up your brain, no puzzle piece, the game slows down. It's, it's the operant conditioning model. 
right? That you are training the brain to speed up a little bit. And it's a cumulative learning effect. So um, the, the first session, your brain will, your brain will fire a little bit more quickly for about 30 minutes. And then your brain will go back to, to doing what's easier. And what's easier for the brain is to fire um, in those slow brain waves because it's learned that over time. And so we'll go back to firing the slow brain waves. After the second session, it'll remember a little bit longer and it'll, it'll maybe remember for an hour to fire that way and so on and so forth. And so over time, it gets easier for your brain to fire in those, mm, those, those more quick uh, brainwave patterns. So do you incorporate meditation or mindfulness in your practice? Beautiful question. So I definitely, um, I use breathing during my sessions, especially if someone is you know, saying, I, you know, I just, I can't breathe. We'll slow down and we do, uh, we do breathing. I, I trained at um, MD Anderson in the integrative medicine department. That was where I did my dissertation. And so I, I got to experience lots of different um, types of mind body practices there. Um, one thing that I find though, is that sometimes people don't want to do it. And I don't know if it's just our American ways, like we, you know, we don't, they don't feel comfortable doing it. So if they're not comfortable doing it, I absolutely don't mandate it. Um, but I, I, I will suggest apps to them and, and things like that, because I think it's a beautiful way to get oxygen to the blood, get oxygen to the brain, and to really, you can see the effects of it neurologically. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and I think our Western culture is now becoming more open to the practice of meditation. Uh, obviously, it's been something that's more targeted toward Eastern philosophies. And I know that there's been, there is some hesitation, especially in the black community, because I know I was accused of trafficking with the devil when I, when I talked about meditation. But I've been meditating for more than 25 years. And it is one of those things that, in terms of importance, it's like you need air, you, <laughs> you need shelter, you need food. You need water and you need to meditate. <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, it, it's that important for me. Um, it, it, it has literally changed my life in so many ways. Um, the benefits are just unimaginable. And the science behind it now is really uh, being accepted more because that's, you know, in the Western culture, that's the first thing we want to think, well, what's the science say? Well, the science is showing the benefits of it. So I am a huge proponent of meditation by, without question. And one of the things that would happen at MD Anderson a lot um, uh, was that people would be, you know, we, the, the research assistants would approach them to do a study for yoga, for meditation. And um, a lot of the community, um, you know, any, anyone who has, um, who had sort of a religious uh, kind of upbringing would be very um, hesitant, right? They would say like, oh no, that's, you know, that, that's opposed to my faith. And so um, we had to kind of uh, adjust the lens through which they're seeing it and speaking out of it as, you know, a form of prayer, which is so helpful, right? Of, and there was this neat data that showed that um, meditating, and I think it was, it was saying the rosary, like that, that kind of repetitive, that your brainwaves go into a really similar, um, similar beat. And, and so I think um, helping people frame it in a way that's not scary. Um, I even had one lady who was a participant. She was very sweet. 
who said that the sun salutation, the, the S-U-N, sun salutation in her yoga pose, she reframed that in her head to the sun, the sun of God salutation. And so it was beautiful because she fit the, the kind of um, the benefits into her own, um, she, was, she was a Christian, into her own Christian philosophy and understanding. So I think there's a way we can join the worlds together, but, but it does, it, it takes explaining for sure. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So now we want to move into financial therapy. Yes, yes. <laughs> because on your site, it says financial therapy integrates the cognitive, emotional, spiritual, relational, and economic factors that have an impact on your life and relationships. And you say money problems are cited as the most frequent sources of stress in marriages and families. And I would also add in business. <laughs> so money problems without question. So talk to us a little bit about financial therapy. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for, for reading, um, for reading that uh, definition. So absolutely, especially as my training as a marriage and family therapist, this comes up often. It is cited as the number one reason for couples that get divorced within the first three years of marriage, the number one reason. And there's boatloads of data of um, how the problems around money are the most pervasive and the ones that are the least resolvable by couples. And so when, when I first um, kind of found uh, financial therapy, um, it, was, it was when I was done with my doctoral program and I was just um, looking up resources for my clients, honestly. I wasn't, it wasn't really something I thought, oh, I'm gonna go do this financial therapy thing. It was just trying to find some ways to help my clients with their, with their financial life. And, um, and I, I ran across, it's so interesting, like this morning I was just you know, um, scrolling through my newsfeed on Facebook and uh, Dave Ramsey was on and I normally don't stop at his videos because I think he's, a, he's, he's got some good ideas. He's a little quirky, but I normally don't stop at his videos, but I stopped at this one. And he was shouting at the top of his lungs of how stupid people are and just, just dumb, just make terrible decisions with their money. And I thought, oh my goodness, Dave. And I, I thought, you know, that's the opposite of financial therapy. We're not going to yell at you about your stupid financial decisions. We are not going to do that, um, and, and I'm sorry, Dave Ramsey, if you don't normally do that, but that video was not super helpful, um, not very inspirational, um, but it's just kind of, uh, it's very much exploring your money scripts. There's a lot of research done by Dr. Brad Klontz about this, and he developed a, not an intervention, but a, a philosophy of looking at uh, money, looking at your money scripts. What did you learn about money as a child? What did you learn about saving and investing? And for many people, the answer is nothing, right? We didn't talk about that. Our society will talk about sex nonstop, right? They'll talk about emotions much more now, but we still don't talk about money. Even in my own family, we, we never really talked about money. We just kind of passively received messages about money from our society and from our culture. And we were told to save, we weren't told how. Right? We, weren't, we weren't told, you know, what to do. It was just avoid debt and save your money. Okay, and then what? And so if you look at money and how people spend, 
that will teach you so much about what they value. It's a beautiful indicator of what's important to that person, right? And so what better way, if we are behaving as um, anthropologists, what better way to get a glimpse into someone's life than to look at their money matters? And so generally the work that I do as a financial therapist is with couples. I don't see too many individuals coming to me. Why is that? Is because it's not a problem until you interface with another person about finances. So generally, although I have seen a few people uh, individually, it's generally couples. And the first thing that we do is we do this interview of what does money mean to you? What's your money script? What lessons have you learned about money? And it's amazing. I would say 90% of them have never had these conversations ever. And it's beautiful to see, oh, I didn't realize that's why you always cut the coupons. I didn't realize that's why you don't wanna do investments. And just all these beautiful things come out. And it's because it's people's values. Money indicates what people value and what's important. And it's just much a part of your cultural heritage as your ethnicity. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because I know there's a guy, you ever hear of a guy named T. Harp Ecker? That sounds really familiar. Yeah, he's one of these, um, I'll call him a money guru kind of guys that he, he promotes the millionaire mindset. That's his, that's uh-huh. his big claim, the millionaire mindset. And he's really into financial abundance from a spiritual perspective. And, and what he challenges people to do, what you were saying earlier, is about looking at their scripts, the things that we were taught, the beliefs that we hold about money and recognizing how a lot of our beliefs about money were shaped at a very early age. And we hold on those to those beliefs as we grow older. We don't even realize we're operating from some very limiting beliefs about money. For example, some of us have heard, you know, money doesn't grow on trees and we have this scarcity mindset around money. And what he does is he challenges people to change their beliefs about money. And I think that's exactly what you're saying with your therapy. So that you're bringing awareness to the couple of their values and what their scripts or beliefs are around money. And when you can see another person's point of view, you're less likely to have conflict because now you understand why they're doing what they're doing in terms of money. Absolutely. And so one of the things I've done in some of my relationship workshops and, and conversations, what I do is I, I challenge people to ask themselves, okay, when you're looking for, let's say you're single and you're looking for someone, generally speaking, well, what do we do? Especially as men, we think of externals. How does she look? What does she drive? You know, those types of things, where she work. But we have to ask deeper questions like, what are their values around money? Now, it took me a while to figure this out, but I remember when I got married the first time, my, my former wife, bless her heart, Money was not an issue. To, she, she could care less about money and stuff. And the perfect example of how this can affect your marriage is I bought our first house when I was like 23 years old. And I was really proud of buying my wife a house. Yeah. And she says to me, this is a nice house, but I would have been just as happy in the apartment. And she meant that with all her heart. She meant that. But what did I hear <laughs> in my little head about, 
this woman don't appreciate how hard I'm working for us. And boy, I mean, it was a big blow up and I was completely wrong. I was completely wrong. And I did apologize later, but it was my stuff <laughs> that was driving that conversation. So when it comes to money and relationships, it's important to have these types of conversations because as you mentioned, Stephanie, that's the leading cause in, in a lot of cases, divorce and breakups, because we haven't discussed our values around money. It's amazing. Yeah. It's something so important that we don't really talk about. <laughs> yeah, so, we're not given, um, think of, uh, I mean, we're, we're kind of taught that it's rude. We're taught that if we, I mean, even, let's, let's, take, let's take romantic relationships out of the, out of the, picture um how often do you talk about finances with your friends Ooh, no no that's rude you can't talk about finances other than just a general like oh i got a raise you it's okay to say that but you're not allowed to talk about debt and how to tackle it you're not allowed to talk about um you know investments and and and, and where you're saving your money or if you're saving enough or if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're not allowed to, to say those, those things. It's not acceptable. And it's because we, we kind of, we, we live in a very pretending to be polite society where we, we don't wanna, we don't wanna impose our values on anyone. And so I think that while that comes from a, you know, a good place, it can lead to a clumsiness around how to have those financial conversations. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, from a male perspective, too, there's this whole keeping up with the Joneses mentality that our sense of self-worth is wrapped up into the stuff that we have. Yes. And that's why we go out and buy these cars that we can't afford. And, you know, we're, we're, buying. We're, not trying, we're not trying to keep up with the Joneses anymore. We're trying to keep up with the Kardashians. <laughs> um, I wish we were trying to keep up with the Joneses. We could afford that more. But it's it's just gotten really ridiculous. Yeah. 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 So, and I think in, in summary, as we wind down, it, it, it really boils down to us as human beings, as people really being willing to examine our deeply held beliefs and values around what's really important. And I think that's why therapy is so important because it gives us an opportunity to really look at things from a different perspective outside of our own little boxes. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way we can change. That's the only way we can change is to have someone from the outside, if you will, share with us that which we cannot see. And so again, I think that's exactly what you're doing with your, with your financial therapy class. So, so real quickly, what are two things, two things that you'd like to share with the audience in terms of financial therapy and dealing with money? What are two tips, if you will? So the first, so and this is what I have all my couples do when they come up to financial aid. The first thing is you cannot change without feedback. It goes back to the neurofeedback as well. You can't change without feedback. And so you have to set up a mechanism by which you can honestly and accurately view your spending habits. Something that I use in my own family and something I recommend to my clients is Mint, M-I-N-T, like just like a mint. And it is a beautiful app that tracks all your spending. You can't buy anything through it or anything like that, but it tracks all of your spending habits. And what I love about it is it, um, it takes 
not just your, because a lot of people just look at their credit card statement. Well, that's not accurate. You have stuff coming out of your savings, you have stuff coming out of your checkings. You need to have the, the entire picture. And one thing that I love about that is it allows couples to see where money is going and still keep their bank accounts separate. I know some couples really do value the separateness of their bank accounts, but we're in Texas, y'all. And <laughs> in Texas, it's community property. So you might as well see where it's all going. But it's a great way because since you can't spend or shift any money from within the app, the couple can still see where the money is going um, and, and, uh, and, and then you know, without the risk of having the account. Yeah. Um, that's my first bit of advice. The second bit of advice would be to have a, a, a budget, have an annual budget of what is coming in and what is going out. And I know that sometimes it's a little bit difficult to do this because, um, especially if you're in a startup of an entrepreneurial system, you're not quite sure how much is going in, coming in. One of the things that you can help plan for is to have a plan of what is going out and then what's your minimum that you need to make to cover that and help you think in the long term um, and investment strategy wise. And so I think that sometimes people have a theoretical budget in their head but share that with your partner. You wouldn't not you wouldn't forget to share that with your business partner. So don't forget to share it with your with your life partner either. Yeah, very very important. I I've had in some of my coaching sessions where I challenge people to for one week, and I, I'm glad you mentioned that app because apps are definitely a way to go. But what I would do for for one week, I have people write down every penny they spent. I mean, every penny. And it's amazing how after that week, you go, oh, wow, I didn't realize it. You know, I did this for lunch, then I did this for a snack, or I did this, you know, and it's, we just don't pay attention sometimes. So just putting attention on it can now allow you to see what's going on, and then you can make adjustments after you see that. So having a budget is extremely, extremely important. So with that being said now, how can people reach you if they want to learn more about your financial therapy and so forth and maybe work with you? Sure, sure, definitely. My, um, my website is www.stephaniezepeda, that's Z-E-P-E-D-A.com. Or feel free to email me at drzepeda at stephaniezepeda.com. Uh, I think that um, you know, reaching out to me through those two would be perfect. Or you can definitely look at the Financial Therapy Association if you're just curious about more information about the field of financial therapy. They have a journal on there with loads of beautiful articles about finances and couples and relationships. And so uh, please look at that website as a wonderful resource as well. Fantastic. So now I'd like to give you an opportunity to share any final thoughts that you have with the audience based on our conversation today. So whatever comes to mind, just share with the audience. Yeah, I think um, kind of bringing back in where we started the conversation with maintaining hope. If you're having financial struggles, if it's having an impact on your relationships, if you feel like all is, all is lost, maintain that hope and, and don't give up. There's ways out of even the messiest of situations and, and human beings are really resourceful and wonderful creatures. And you do have people who can help you um, in, your, in your own life to get organized and to feel the peace of having that, that um, financial, financial plan. And so uh, don't despair. 
maintain that positive anthropology, maintain that hope, um, not just in your emotional life, but also in your financial life as well. All righty. Great words of wisdom. So Stephanie, I just want to say thank you for spending an hour with us and sharing your wisdom. And I'm sure this will be benefit someone out there. So again, I just appreciate you so much for, for sharing with us. And so I just want to say thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me on. This was just wonderful. I, I really, um, I am really glad that you're doing this and I'm really just thrilled, uh, thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So this has been another episode of Joy, Passion, and Profit. And as always, remember, express your joy, share your passions, and be grateful for your profits. We'll see you next episode. Take care.